you're worthy, oh Lord God. We magnify your name, Jesus. We lift you higher and higher and higher, Lord. We magnify your name. Glory and honor and praise and dominion and power belong to you, Jesus, forever and ever and ever and ever. Lord, we just say with the angels today, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, we bless your name. We worship you, Lord. We honor you, Lord God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Please be seated. You know, sometimes it's a cliche when people say, please be seated in the presence of the Lord, but <laughs> it wasn't this time. <laughs> I'm giving what is generally the third session in a seminar which we've been giving since 2006. And this has to do with well, why God loves humanity, and we're going to be seeking to enter into uh, his heart uh, concerning this matter. And I hope that, I hope, I expect that there will be a refreshing of motivation, uh, perhaps some new information, um, uh, perhaps a way of looking at things that is either affirmed or adjusted. And uh, by the way, this fellowship has been very dear to us over the years. And in addition, uh, between Christina and uh, Kasperson and the Steins, they were involved in uh, translating the book I wrote, in, one into Chinese and one into Spanish. And so, you know, we appreciate the co-laboring that we've experienced here and the support of friends over the years. Um, so we'll begin. Father, in the name of the Messiah, Jesus, help us to speak and help us to hear. So first of all, we talk about what is humanity and why is humanity lovely to God? And rather than going through this for about an hour, I'm just going to get to the punchline and use that as a foundation for what's next. The reason that humanity is lovely to God is because God made humanity in his image with the express purpose that humanity would draw his love. Humanity was created in the image of God specifically to be loved by him. Humanity is, according to the biblical revelation, the most lovely thing to God in creation. And the mystery of God's love for us can be explained by his incredible creative ability. He was able to make us to be lovely to himself. And he succeeded because he's an extraordinary creator. He's a glorious creator and has made us to be, as his image, that which stirs his heart and attracts him. He made us to be lovely to him. He created humanity to draw his love. He succeeded in the goal because he is a glorious creator. That's what he created. That's humanity. That's what it is that we are. And that's what it is that uh, he loves, why he loves us. He created us to be lovely to him. He did it. Hallelujah. Now, the message that I'll be giving with that foundation, if you've got that, you've got an awful lot, by the way. And uh, I'm not... I'm not pushing my book for the purpose of sales, but I am pushing the book if you're interested in studying these things out a bit more. It's a, it, it's, it's a Bible study. Oh, by the way, we have the Lamicas with us, and Lindsay Lamica, who some of, some of you might know, uh, did our children's CD, which if you don't want to read a book but you still want the theology, get the kitty CD. Hallelujah. <laughs> Okay, so why did God create humanity? Why did he create that which would be lovely to him in the first place? Well, we know that he was motivated by his nature. Everybody, everything, including God who made all things, is motivated by his nature. 1 John 4, 8 speaks and says that God is love, right? Now, God created humanity as an act of love. 
and when we look at the, descri- the descriptions of humanity's ultimate destiny, we find his motive and the result of his plans. Because like when you look at the end of all things, you understand what it is that God had purposed in the beginning. And we have all of these metaphors, all of these descriptions for what redeemed humanity is to God at the end of all things, which is in many ways the beginning of all things, you know, which we are looking forward to. And thank you, Dean, for those encouragements earlier in the meeting. So here are some of the metaphors. He made humanity to be children and priests and heirs and bride and brothers and friends and joint heirs and kingdom and subjects and regents and rulers and representatives and temple and body and co-workers and army. I just mentioned 15 metaphors, but the list goes on. And we shouldn't get stuck on one metaphor because one metaphor is not enough to describe what it is that we are to God. You take like a really incredible relationship um, uh, of that of a friend. And this is like humanity. I created humanity to be my friend, like deep, deep friendship. But, you know, it's not enough as to what humanity is going to be to me. Uh, Humanity is going to be my wife, is going to be the woman that I love. And so you take the love that you have for like your best and dearest friend and combine it with the love that you would have for your wife. And wait a second, it's not just that. Co-workers, there's something about working with somebody. That's of the same mind and the same heart that you share skill with and that you work on a common project with. So I love working with people like that, but there, but you know, you add that that desire, uh, I'm sorry, that that aspect of delight, and combine it with wife, and combine it with friend, and combine it with children. It's not enough that you would just be loved as a wife to God. There's aspects of the beloved child which is thrown into that. It's these all of these metaphors, and not one of them is sufficient to describe what humanity is to God. <laughs> and his mercy endures forever. He is good and his mercy endures forever. And his faithful, steadfast, intervening love. Hallelujah. <laughs> it's just awesome. And this is who humanity is. This is what it is that you are. So why this high purpose? Well, this is what he wanted, but why did he bother to create? Like what motivated God? Well, his love motivated him. But for whom did he create? What was, this pur- what was his purpose? And the answer is obviously he created for himself. He created for himself, but he did not create for himself as absolute like um, Unitarian God. He created for himself as Trinity, right? Uh, like God, the scriptures say that God is love, but it's not just, hi, I am God, I am beaming love, I am beaming love. There's, it's, it's a different type of love than that. Now, my perspective is that God created humanity as a love gift for himself. The living God, Father, Son, and Spirit. You see, when we think of God as love, we think of somebody who is just this loving person, that there's love that's shining out from him all the time. But in eternity past, there was always somebody to love. Love is always, listen, this is really true, because we've been... Uh, The concept of love has been very distorted in the church. Love is always provoked by something outside of oneself. And God the Father, looking at the Son, found someone to love forever. There is always something about the Father that the Messiah Jesus was just enthralled with. The Holy Spirit is always rejoicing in the Father, in the Son. There's this community which is one, one God, three persons, and God being love does not mean, hi, I am God, and I am just beaming out aimless love. There is always something in God, who is God, that provoked God to love. 
There was always delight which was going on. There was always attraction that was going on. There was always interaction that was going on. When you read God is love, don't just think of somebody who is a loving person. Think of someone who is always in love. So before creation, there's this love, there's this communion within God himself. Uh, the dynamic of this relationship can be clearly seen in the incarnation. When we see how the Messiah Jesus related to the Father, we see hints of the way that God relates to himself. This God who is love, well, love always has an object. It is always provoked by something which the lover finds to be lovely. The Father is provoked to love the Son of the Spirit and etc. So we went through that. So John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Now the Greek word employed here for with, the Word was with God, is pros. And the word pros means toward. It means in relationship to. It means facing, like you've got a profile. Someone is pro-life. Pros is pros, the word is pros, towards God, in relationship with. This is not describing a static relationship. Uh, It's Jesus who, before God forever, was delighting, is delighting, was delighting in the Father. The Son moving into the infinite revelation of who the Father is to the Son, and the Father receiving his Son forever. And this movement towards and into one another is going on in, in eternity past forever. And the Spirit of God is rejoicing in their midst. The Spirit of God who really knows the Father and the Son delights in them. God is love. In 1 Corinthians 2.10b it says, The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Ha! <laughs> And what I know this, I know this to be true. The Spirit of God delights to live in us and bring us into the journey of searching out who God is. And the Spirit of God reveals the delight that He has in the person, the nature, the activity, and the ways of God the Father and God the Son. He is searching out the deep things of God, but not just by Himself with us in fellowship with us, as that verse that you brought to China with you, the uh, the favor of the Messiah, the the Father's affection, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. The fellowship of the Spirit is revealing the Father to us. He's doing this, and He's bringing us into that which He has always had. Do you mind taking a look into the heart of God this morning with me? When I talk about this, I get touched. I hope that some of this is affecting you. So let's talk about the love of the Father and the Spirit to the Son. So you have this thing which is going on called the communion of God within himself. And then all of a sudden I envision it like this. The Father and the Son, in the midst of this eternal dynamo of love and joy, they, it's sort of like the Father takes counsel with himself and says, Spirit, I want to somehow manifest my love to the Son more. Let's let's make for him a companion who will be able to love him with the same love with which we love him. Let us create them, the corporate companion, with the capacity to know him, with the capacity to love him. Let us create them with the capacity to identify with him, the capacity to want to be with him. Let us create them, him, her, with the capacity to agree with his purposes because they, they the creation, this creation that we can make, they'll be in harmony with his heart and they'll work with him in the same way that my word, my son, will be the channel, the way through which I work. I will work through my son to create, to sustain, and to govern all that which is created. Let's make that which will correspond to him in the way which he corresponds to me. Let us create them with the capacity to receive his affection, to receive his attention, and not shrink back. That which he will be able to pour his very life into, to be that which will reflect and correspond to him as he reflects and corresponds to me. 
let us create them with the capacity to choose him, to be attracted to him. Let us create that uh, which will have the ability to see the extraordinary value, worthiness of my son. And when they see him as he is, they're going to love him and he will be loved with the same comprehension and appreciation with which we, Holy Spirit, love him. And for this reason, I believe, the Father determined to create a devoted companion, friend, bride, stick with the bride metaphor, a wife for Jesus. And the bride's love for Jesus is like Jesus' love for the Father. It's like the Father and the Spirit of God determined. Father said, my son shall know what it is like to be loved in the same way I I am, I have been loved by him. You see, there's something which the Father could never do for the Son which was to love the son from the position of sonship. The father is always father. He is essentially father. The son is essentially son. But the father, he loves being loved by the son and wants to give, has given, wanted to give the son the same experience that he had. He says, let's make them so that he will, he will be loved and receive the same joy that I receive in being loved by him. So in addition, by the way, the father wanted the son not only to experience being loved just as he, father, is loved by the son. But you know what? The father loves loving the son. It's part of the, of the great joy of eternity is the love that God, our Father, has for the beloved, exalted, God incarnate, glorified, but before incarnate, the very word, the very Son of the living God, the joy of eternity. The Father says, have you ever been around somebody that you just loved and you loved loving? Well, the Father wanted to give that to Jesus. The joy of being loved, the joy of loving. The joy of being loved, the joy of loving. It's like, let's do this for the Son of God. So as a result, he determined that his son would receive a love from this creation that would be the result of their communion with the Spirit. It would be relational from the start. And the Spirit would then give them the Father's view of the worthiness of the Son, and the Son would also receive the joy of loving another in the same way Father enjoyed loving the Son. Now, this pattern and this metaphor, by the way, you did catch that, right? So I hope that I'm communicating. I know that I'm from New York. Uh This is what it is that the Father was giving to the Son in the creation of humanity. It's described in some of those metaphors. So you can do the same thing with children. Let's say children, like loving the Son from a place of fatherhood is an incredible experience for God the Father. To the degree that the Father, Abba, wanted to give it to the Son. He so delighted in his Son's love and so enjoyed loving the Son that as a gift, he determined to create that which would give the pre-incarnate Son the joy of having somebody to love as the Father had joy in loving him. He loved being loved by the Son, and he created humanity with the capacity to love the Son from a position of sonship. I know, it's crazy. But, you know, one of the prophetic words about the Messiah is that he would be called in Isaiah 9, 6, what? Everlasting Father. The father is giving the son an opportunity to be to love as a father and to be loved by this creation, receiving joy from his children's love and joyously loving his children. John fifteen verse nine, Jesus said, "Just as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Remain in my love." Jesus has got that. He's loving humanity. He's loving his disciples as the Father loved him. So again, rehearsing this before we move on into like our next section, I may end up preaching longer than normal. I don't know how long we had a brief uh, praise and worship break, you know, beforehand, but it may have eaten into my time, or else, you know, I just need more time, you know. So, 
Look, I drove down here, all right? <laughs> I put my time in to get here. You look at <laughs> so, The Father enjoyed knowing the Son's love. Amen. The Father joyously loved the Son, and He's given this experience to the Son of God. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. Jesus has this. For the same reason, the Messiah Jesus now experiences fatherhood. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 13, speaking of the Son of God in the midst of a worshiping community. Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. And John 13, verse 33, Jesus said to his disciples, Little children, I am with you a little while longer. So this is the purpose that God had with his spirit to give his son the same type of relationship he had with Jesus. Glory to God. That's humanity for you. And then, of course, the son of the spirit, father has gone out to check on the property. The son of the spirit are left alone in the house. And they say, there's the pre-incarnate son saying to the spirit, spirit, look at how a father is rejoicing the love which I am giving him. Let's, let's make children who can love him with the same quality of love which I have for him. Let's make children who will enjoy being loved by him. In the same way, I love being loved by him. Let's make children who will be as valuable to him as I am. Let's make children who in the father's eyes, in the father's evaluation, will be worthy of the same type of love with which he loves me. And the spirit and the son uh, say yes. And at the same time, the father is looking and and, and the father and the son are, are in communion with one another. Let's do something for the Spirit. Let's give him a temple that won't constrain him, but will free him to be himself, a place where he can find rest, a place where he can be at home in the created material realm. Let's make him something that will further free him just as he is free in us. Let's make him, you know, wind free let us make him something which will be able to relate to him and, will in, and with which he will enjoy interacting. And we have found such love and delight in him. Let us give to him that which can increase his joy and will enjoy him even as we do. Because it's the spirit who is in the Father. It's the spirit of the Son. We get to enjoy Let's make that which will enjoy him, and he will enjoy being in and with them. They will enjoy him as we do, and we'll create that which he'll be able to fellowship with and flow through in the material realm just as he does in us. And then comes the conclusion. Because God looks at himself and says, but where will we find something this wonderful? What shall we make? All right, let's make some light and separate it from the darkness. Let's separate the waters from the sky. Let's separate water from land. Let's make some plants. No, not yet. Let's, uh, all right, let's make some sun and moon and stars. Okay, maybe we're getting somewhere, but this like, all right, let's make fish. Let's make birds. Let's make animals. Let's make creeping things. And they look and they go, all of this is good. It was made. It was good. But it's, it's, it's like we haven't quite got yet what we're after. It's good, but it's not very good as of yet. And it's been six and a half days. It's like, what are we going to do? What shall we create to fulfill this plan? And God has a moment. Now, I recognize this is like a story, right? God has a moment, like as if God has a moment. Maybe God experiences a moment somehow. And they look at one another and say, all right, it's been six and a half days. We've really been working, and it just hasn't quite hit the spot yet. I know. Let us make man in our own image and according to our likeness. And he does. And when it comes to life, God is smitten. This is what I have been waiting for. You know, Father, you made this for me. Son, you made this for me. Spirit God says, you made this for me. Hi, Adam, how are you doing? Begins the wooing process. 
begins to develop that relationship. I want you to learn to work along with me. Here's this garden. Let's work it together. So to recapitulate, God created humanity as a love gift to himself. This love gift is described in a series of biblical metaphors. The metaphors are mysteries, right? They are. They're symbols and they're representations of love. And God uses metaphors to reveal hidden spiritual realities. The scripture speaks of God in human terms. You know, he who has made the ear, does he not hear? He who has made the eye, does he not see? Right? And the answer is yes, he does. Only more. How much more? You can say more and more and more and from now and, to, and several lifetimes worth of saying more and you still don't scratch the surface. You know, and it's the same thing with these metal. I mean, God, he, we hear, it's analogous to God hearing, right? But God hears so much more, so much more. It's the same thing with these metaphors, like hell is worse than a, a garbage dump, which is where the garbage is on fire. The marriage supper is more than food. Personally, I like the hors d'oeuvres more than the meal oftentimes, but the marriage supper is more than food. These are metaphors that are supposed to spring our imagination and our hope into a greater reality, a greater hope. And it's the same thing with these metaphors. And earlier, I mentioned 15 of them. Now, the sacred language, it goes on and on trying to adequately describe something which corresponds to the glorious purpose that our Creator has for us. And, but, and we're going to review these things, but for the sake of time, we're going to use one primary metaphor per person of the Godhead, which describes humanity's relationship to God. First, the Father receives children. Not knock-off children, not make-believe children, children like the Son. 1 John chapter 3 1a through 2a, behold how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, hallelujah, that we would be called children of God, and amazingly, that's what we are, and such we are. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. The Father receives humanity as a love gift as children. The Son receives a bride. The wife, the bride, the most intense human relationship, this poignant mystery of our relationship with God. But it's a, a, a faint replica of what God has in store for him and for us. It's a replica. It's a model. It's, it's as if, like, you know, you have, uh, we somehow always manage to come down to the Concord area when there's this race going on. We've stayed in people's houses. We're up until 10 o'clock at night. It's, you know, it's like, it's just it's going on and on. It's loud and it's crowded. And we stayed up here in Mooresville. Hallelujah. <laughs> um, okay. So you ever see one of those little racing cars that kids get or adults get and they put on their mantle? Look at that. It's so-and-so's car. It's a faint replica. Our marriages at their highest... Is a, uh, they are a faint replica of what it is that God has in store for the Son and what God has in store for humanity. Um, more than any man could love any woman, more than any oneness that could ever be achieved. And take a look at this. I mean, this is in Scripture. Husbands, love your wives as the Messiah also loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's a now reality that the church is wife of the Messiah. And the spirit receives a house. His father receives children. Son receives a wife. Spirit receives a house. Corporate temple and individual temples. Corporate temple. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and will be their God and they shall be my people. Corporate temple. Individual temples. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 19a, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have, uh, which you, whom you have from God? Spirit of God receives a temple, a house, corporately and individually. 
The Son of God receives a wife. The Father receives children. He says, I am going to make them to be your bride, to be your sons, to be your temple. Now question, if you had the opportunity to choose the perfect life partner, would you choose someone you would have to constantly grit your teeth and make a determined effort to love? Wouldn't you choose someone that appealed to you in every way? Wouldn't you choose someone that was ideal for you? You think that God is intending to wake up in the morning, look across the bed or across the room at his wife, grit his teeth and say, love is not a feeling, it's an act of my will? Is God less wise than you? Is he less passionate? Is he less practical? No. And in, uh, in addition, he is the all-powerful and only wise creator. He was able to make the perfect bride for his son. So God creating humanity to be bride made us in a way that would sincerely, eternally, spontaneously, fervently, res- um, let me change that. He made us in such a way that God himself would sincerely, eternally, spontaneously, and fervently love us into eternity. He made us to be, for him, the most wonderful thing in the universe. He made us as his image. It was the most glorious thing that he could do. His son deserved nothing less. The image of God is the loveliest, holiest thing in creation, and it is, extra- it is extraordinary to be created for such a purpose. It is an extraordinary thing to be created as God's image. Not only is God's heart stirred by humanity as in love at first sight, but we have been created by him to enjoy being loved by him for all of forever. We have that capacity inherent in us so that in the resurrection we will have the capacity to enjoy being loved by God. It's like, oh, I was made for this. We have been created and called to an eternally creative, stimulating, fascinating, holy relationship. So, now you apply the same logic to the metaphors of temple or body or children. If you had unlimited resources, what type of house would you make for yourself? What type of body, if you were able to choose, would you you create or build for yourself? What type of children would you have? Would, would you love your perfect house? Would you, would you love your, uh, your perfect body? Would you love your beloved children? God has created us to be the objects of this type of love as a love gift for himself. God created you to be special, uh, so special, that he would be able to, de- listen to this, he would be able to demonstrate his love for his son by giving you to Jesus. Let me show you how much I love you. Father, I know how much you love me. Wait a second. Close your eyes. Come on in. Come on in. In comes this corporate bride. And Jesus opens his eyes and says, Oh, Father, I knew you loved me, but this is more than I could have imagined. In every way, God, huma- God made humanity as the ideal bride, friend, son, priest, brethren, temple, body for himself. We were created to be incredibly beautiful and satisfying to God. And he, he was able to do this because he is an excellent creator. Okay. Well, thank you very much, uh, David. That was lovely. Uh, but um, what about what we are like now? What about our current condition? So, like the mystery of God's love for all of humanity is solved in the glory of his being an extraordinary creator. He succeeded in creating humanity for the purpose of drawing, of attracting his love, and that includes you. But the Bible is not Pollyannish about humanity's nature. You take a look at Paul writing to the Romans and giving both Jews and Gentiles the common ground of needing redemption, and he writes, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. 
There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So we have this extraordinary destiny, but look at us now. But you see, here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that humanity is still the image of God. First in Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made humanity. Well, you go, well, that's the Old Testament. That's some sort of a Jewish thing, and we're in the New Covenant now. We know that humanity is in the image of the devil. Well, James chapter 3, verse 9, With our mouths we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. There are these two witnesses from these two, from in the midst of these two covenants that are bearing testimony to the same thing, which is this. Humanity is still the image of God. Now, we may be a distorted image. We may be like the type... Anybody here, not in my generation, but younger ever go into like what was called a fun house at a carnival or an amusement park they would have like these mirrors and you'd look in them and like I would look at them and I'm a little kid and I would look at what it is that I look like today and go oh my god <laughs> so, or, or, or you know you're, you're short you're squat you're tall you're thin you're crooked you're funny looking it's like this distorted image but it's not just distorted the image is not just distorted it's there's an aspect of, 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 of hopelessness helplessness desperation uh, a hubris a malevolence that is in humanity but it's a distorted image it's a distorted image it's a perverted image and yet it still manifests God to creation and according to the scripture not according to our philosophies according to the scripture humanity has not ceased to be lovely to God we are tragically beloved by him We're taking the treasure of what it is that we are and wasting it on vanity and evil. Let's take the example, I hope that this does not describe your life, but I have had friends, men and women alike, who have been betrayed by their spouses. They spouse, they thought that they had a wonderful relationship going on. All of a sudden, she is off with another man. He is off with another woman. Uh, To the heartbreaking, broken spouse, the, the person who is in adultery has not immediately ceased to be lovely. Like, it's like, like she has not ceased to be lovely, but she is in love with the wrong man. And there's a heartbreak which is going on there. He has not ceased to be like the husband of her dreams. He, he is still uh, 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 attracts her love. She still loves him, but he is in love with another woman. And it's that type of relationship that is going on with God and humanity. In the foundational metaphor of the bride, humanity has not ceased to be lovely to him, but we have become adulterous like Gomer or like Judah, Hosea 1 verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. And in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 30, the God says through the prophet, How languishing is your heart, declares the Lord God, while you do all these things, the actions of a bold-faced harlot. In the foundational metaphor of children, we have not ceased to be beloved children, but we have become rebels and hateful like Absalom. No thank you for your kingdom. No thank you, Father. We've got our own. Second Samuel verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 6. In this manner, Absalom, he's, he's undermining his father. Uh, in this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment, and Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Second Samuel 18, verse 33, describes David's heart when he hears that Absalom, his desperate and mortal enemy, is dead. It says, the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. 
Foundational metaphor of the wife, still loved by God, adulterous. Foundational metaphor of child, still the delight of the father's heart, rebellious, usurper, treasonous. The foundational metaphor of the temple, one metaphor per person in the Trinity. We have not ceased to be desirous for God, we have not ceased to be desirous as a dwelling place. But we have become our bodies and corporately within the framework of societies, cultures, families, ethnicities, our own lives. We have become a house of idolatrous filth, like Manasseh's temple, or like a den of thieves in the day of Jesus. You know, it's quoting uh, from Jeremiah. Second Kings uh, 21, 6 through 7, speaking of Manasseh, he made his son pass through the fire, practiced witchcraft, used divination, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And then he set the carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord said to David and to his son Solomon, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name. And Jesus says, take these things out. Uh, You stop making my father's house a place of business as a house that God still desires to dwell there. But there are squatters that have come in and have transformed it into that which is like anti-God, filthy. I mean, a place that nobody in his right mind would want to live, but God still uh, sees the house as being his home. It's the house that I said I'm going to put my name there. I'm always going to live there. They built it according to my specifications. So what is the revelation we've been given about fallen humanity in these metaphors? The son, the child metaphor, beloved but embittered, rebellious, treasonous, hateful, self-centered, the bride, still desired, but adulterous and hard-hearted, the house, treasured, but filthy, defiled, usurped. That's humanity's current condition. And what is God's response to this? Well, his response is this. He is determined to get us back for himself. That's the gospel. I shall bring back my bride. I shall bring back my children. I shall claim and cleanse my house. And to do this, he has gone to war and passionately provided a way for us to be brought back. And it can be encapsulated in for God. So loved the world. Now try to understand this. The love that he has for the world is not God just beaming love. There are plenty of things that God sees that God hates. He doesn't love the devil. He doesn't love sickness. He doesn't love war. He, doesn't, there are, he does not love oppression. There are things that when God finally reveals himself, these things are going up in flames. God is not trapped in being just a loving person. There are things that God loves, and I'll tell you one of those things. He loves his children, even if they are in rebellion. He loves that woman, even if she is in adultery. He loves that house, even if, even if it has been taken over and usurped and defiled. And he is saying, I love them so much that I'm going to send my only begotten son to die in their place to overturn the wickedness of creation, to bring my beloved back to my Myself. And if you don't get that, you don't get the gospel. You might have the mechanics right, but this is an act of passion. This is an act of, I'm going to rescue my kids. I'm going to change them and bring them. That's my house. Devil, get out of my house. That's my woman. You come on outside. We'll see whose woman she is. Excuse me. 
He did not just value our potential. John 3.16 does not read, For God so valued the potential of a redeemed humanity that he gritted his teeth, strengthened his will, and gave his one and only son for people he really didn't like, so that whoever believes in him shall never perish, but fulfill their potential, eventually being conformed to the image of the Son of God, so that they will finally be worth loving. It doesn't say that. And it also does not say that he did this because he was perfectly wonderful. For God was such a perfectly wonderful person. He is. But it doesn't read this way. For God was such a perfectly wonderful person that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him shall never perish but have eternal life. Now, we have incredible potential. We have extraordinary destiny. He is perfectly wonderful. But that is not why the Father sent his son This wonderful person loves us. Sinners do not cease to be lovely to God. They are tragically beloved. God's love is unwavering towards us right now, no matter what our state. And at this moment, like the shepherd searching the lost sheep, or the woman searching for the lost coin, or the father receiving back, being delighted when he sees his son returning home, his love is searching for and desiring every human being that he has made. To sum up, God created humanity to be lovely to himself. We are as or we are in the image of God and we spontaneously draw God's love. He created us as a love gift to himself. We are ideally made to suit God and although we are fallen, listen, although they are fallen, they are still lovely to God. Although we may be fallen, we are still lovely to God. They are still lovely to God. Lovely to the degree that he was willing to become incarnate in the Son of God and be given up for them to bring humanity back to himself. We do not cease to be lovely to God because we are fallen. Rather, his heart, which is broken, still is filled with desire and keeps yearning and his fiery jealousy is burning and he has acted in the Messiah and he is looking for those who will know his love, who will return to him and he is also looking for those who will allow his love to work in them to release the fullness of his love for the lost. He is looking for partners in intercession, in the gospel, in mission. He is looking for those who will be involved in equipping the body for the work of service. He is looking for those who will end up seeing not humanity's need alone, but God's extraordinary, real desire for them because now they see that that person over there, wherever they are, they are a beloved son who may be in rebellion, prodigal or Absalom, but God's heart is for that person. They may see that person over there, but they don't just see an adulteress who is a friend of the world, so to speak. They are seeing someone that God is saying, I want her back. I want her back. Who will partner with me? Who will dare to step into the fire of this type of, uh, I know it rhymes. I can't help it right now. I don't know what other word to use, but desire. It's a fiery, intense desire that he has for humanity who are created specifically to be loved by him, which he succeeded in creating. He's good enough to do it. I write songs. It's a lot of them I just can't stand after like a few months or a couple of years. Every once in a while I will write something that is like, oh, that's, that's, that's it. I really like, like that song. God created that which he would love to sing. You are just like this. And, you, and listen, you are delighting him. You have returned. You, are, you have returned. You have been redeemed. You are, he loves you like there's like a whole area of interactive love which God has with us now that he never had with us when we were in rebellion when we were usurped and defiled, when we were in adultery. I mean, and, but God is saying, listen, it's not just enough that I, you would know my love, which is really so incredibly important, but can you get on my side? 
God is saying, look, you see them as they are. Can you get on my side? Can you end up becoming involved with the gospel from my perspective? I want them back. I've acted to bring them back to myself. I have made a way and I am ennobling you with this purpose. You entering into a glory of fellowship with me and my desire for them, and I will impart it to you. I will open your eyes to see them, and you will be envisioned seeing them differently and being in partnership with God, knowing your own helplessness will receive power to be his witnesses. So I'm going to ask you right now to first of all, let's take, let me take a, a breath here and and just encourage you. Uh, would you would you consider like stepping into this? Not just mission for their sake, but like the father sent his son, and the son knew that he was bringing them back to the father for the father's sake and for his son's sake. But you you understand what I'm saying? It's like we believe that we have fellowship with God. Are we willing to hear Him, see His heart, see them? through his eyes and perspective, through the word. So, normally I would give like an altar call. I don't know what type of time I have. I know it's late. It's 10 after 12. Pardon me, brother. Okay. Uh, You don't have to come up. You can, you can give yourself over to the Lord in this perspective right where you are. But please don't remain unmoved by this information, by this message. It's B-I-B-L-E. But if you want to come up and dedicate yourself or rededicate yourself to identifying with God and his heart for the lost, would you please come now and begin to talk to God? Abba, in the name of Yeshua, All the souls of the earth are yours. They are yours. They belong to you. They are yours. They belong to you. And we are yours to fellowship with you in your passion for these people. So anoint us, O God, and strengthen us. And as we uh, begin to interact with you about your view of humanity, would you please touch some of us? I'm releasing a call for volunteers. You know, the Lord did not, generally speaking, work with volunteers. But in Isaiah 6, he says, Who will I send? And who will go for us? Is there nothing about the longing heart of your God that stirs you to say, Lord, despite who it is that I am, despite my own weakness, I am so willing to partner with you for these people that you love. Here am I. Send me. Give me your perspective. Show me what to do. Amen. All right, I'm done. But I don't think that the Lord is.